0: All right, Team Pella, listen up. Thanks, John Kuhn. Customers love our products with limited lifetime warranties. Check out these big plays: incredible innovations like blinds and shades between the glass.
1: No interference on that play, Coach.
0: And stylish windows with hidden screens that make game days a breeze. Can it get any better? It can. With monthly payments as low as nineteen dollars per window, seventy-five dollars per patio door, and a free quote
1: at PellaWI.com. Let's go. Six point nine nine APR for one hundred twenty months. Service, supplies and show. Up for Sales offers on 1031-2023. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank, get old. Now, here's
2: WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. He does not look happy. The civil trial involving former President Trump and his kids and the Trump Corporation in New York has just kicked off. He is in the courtroom. And I would say, you know, that that picture of the the mugshot with the scowl, well, he's kind of replicated that. We're going to talk a little bit about that civil trial coming up in just a little bit. We start off, though. Let's get right to it. Do you want compromise or do you want combat? Now, here – let's kind of back into this. Here here is the deal. We in this country have divided government. We have a president who is a Democrat. We have the Senate, which is by a very narrow margin, but a margin nonetheless controlled by Democrats. We have a House of Representatives, which by a very, very narrow margin, like four votes – is controlled by republicans so you have divided government and as a result nobody is going to be able to get everything that they want because if you're a democrat you say okay let's let's talk about a budget i want to spend like there's no tomorrow all right well the problem is you got to get that through the republican controlled house and it's probably not going to happen on the other hand If you are a Republican in the House, you say, you know, we're spending too much money and I want to rein in this program or that program or whatever. Well, you've got limited, limited ability to get everything you want because you've got, you know, a president who's a Democrat and you've got the Senate who's in a Democrat who's controlled by Democrats. So if if you want to get anything done and you want to accomplish anything, you need to have some degree of compromise. Now, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks this budget, um, the, the budget showdown, which has been going on. And if it were not resolved by midnight on Saturday, what would have happened is the government would have had to shut down. And we discussed this, and I understand some people, oh, shut down the government, what the heck? Well, okay, you shut down the government, and first of all, that makes us look like a clown car act to the world. Secondly, it causes all sorts of pain to all sorts of people, starting with federal employees who are suddenly told, okay, you're being furloughed, and, you know, you don't know when your next paycheck is going to come in. Now, ultimately what happens is you end up getting back pay. So it turns into like a paid vacation, but it's incredibly disruptive. We have other people, including TSA agents, border control agents, members of the military who are told, you've got to come to work, but we're not going to give you pay. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll get it at some point in time. It's just no way to run a government. And yet that's what we were on the verge of having happen because – you have a handful of Republicans, like 10 or 20 hardcore, real far-right Republicans who were willing to shut down the government because, well, their demands kept changing, but they wanted like limitations on spending, stuff that was never going to happen because, again, we have this divided government. So faced with government shutdowns, all sorts of pain, and knowing, knowing that this was going to get blamed on Republicans, what ended up happening is Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, a Republican, he, he just said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, I'm going to work across the aisle And, you know, we're going to come up with a a spending program that everybody could live with. And almost all the Democrats voted for it and um, a majority of Republicans voted for it. It got passed. It got passed in the Senate. Biden signed it. And we, we put off this. Will the government shut down until the middle of November? But it was a degree of compromise. Now, interestingly, the. As it turned out, the the Republicans, I think, got less than they might have otherwise gotten had it not been for – had they decided some of these hardcore Republicans voted for – if they had decided to vote for something that was introduced earlier in the week, um, that could have gone through and it could have been a basis for negotiating, but they shot that down. So the effect was McCarthy, if he didn't want to shut down the government and he did not – No, he had to reach across the aisle and you had to have this compromise, which I think leaves almost nobody happy, but at least it keeps government operating. So what's happened now is you have this handful of Republicans who are now saying, all right, we're going to introduce a resolution. We're going to, we want to over, we want to get rid of of McCarthy and as the speaker. Now, nobody knows who the next speaker would be and what that would, would entail, this coalition is being led by a guy out of Florida named Matt Goetz, who's a congressman who, well, candidly, he's more about seeing his name in the paper and getting national attention, again, among hardcore conservatives, because the word is he doesn't want to be in Congress. He wants to run for governor of Florida in 2026. And so what happens is you never find yourself on CNN or Fox News or NBC, or any of these things, if you're just a congressman or a congresswoman who puts their head down and just works, okay, I'm going to try to get something done, I'm going to try to do things for my constituency, etc. if you want to see yourself on the national stage so that you can maybe raise money for a run for governor or whatever, what you want to do is you want to be a flamethrower, because then you're going to be all over the media and you can maybe build a, a national audience, people who will send you money. That's who Matt Getz is, and that's who some of the other people that support gets are. But there are folks, including some of these hardcore Republicans, who are very disappointed that McCarthy decided in an effort to keep the government open, since he couldn't work, there weren't enough Republicans who would go along with a compromise, he just reached across the aisle. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you want from your elected officials? Do you want combat? Do you want people who are just going to say, "I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm willing, I'm willing to blow this up, I'm willing to cause all sorts of people pain until I get what I want," or do you want compromise? People who say, "Look, I, I understand the reality of divided government. I understand that there are limitations on what I can get, and I want stuff done. I, I don't want." all the people that support the border agents being laid off. I don't want to see the national parks closed down. I don't want to worry about there being a delay in checks that are going out to people. I don't want to shut down the government. And I recognize the reality is, you know, in politics, not everything is possible. And in divided government – well, you've got to reach compromises or nothing's going to get done. But I understand that that's not appealing to some people. Some people would rather have the combat. Draw the line in the sand. If I don't get everything I want, you want to fund Ukraine? No way. No way we're going to do that. Shut down the government. I don't agree with that. 855-616-1620. What do you want? Do you want combat? Do you want compromise? We discuss in a moment. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. See, here, here's what it really comes down to in, in divided government. It comes down to combat or or compromise. And in combat, you pretty much guarantee that, that nobody can win. And that's what we were looking at going into this potential government shutdown, which would have – hurt the economy even more. And we have a fragile economy right now. It would have laid off 4 million federal employees. And I understand there's some people who say, oh, who cares if they come to work or not? Well, I mean, they're the folks that are supporting, for example, the the border control agents, it would have created huge disruption. Okay, the military families depend on those paychecks, and their soldiers would have still had to go to work, but the the wives or the husbands who are supporting the family at home, they wouldn't have gotten any money until this thing ends. It's just, it's no way to run a railroad. But given the fact that there's divided government, nobody can get what they want. Now, if the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress and they controlled the presidency— all right, that that's one thing. Or the same thing is true with the Democrats. But that's not we where we are right now. So now you have a handful of these these Uber right wing Republicans who I, I think in several cases we're doing it simply because they wanted to show that they could, and trying to set themselves up. Let's, you know, I mean, again, you don't get on, you don't get on the the news shows by putting your head down and simply working for your constituents. If you're that flamethrower, I'm going to shut the government down. Well, that gets you the national exposure that, in the case of, for example, a guy like Matt Getz, who's a congressman from Florida, you know, when he runs for governor in 2026, he'll have a national donor base that he can draw on, and and that's. I think that's as much about what's going on as what happened. But anyways, McCarthy reaches out. He says, look, I'm not going to shut down the government. So you come up with a compromise where, candidly, you know, the Republicans probably had to give up more than they would have if they had been able to present a united front earlier on. But they couldn't. So do you want combat? Do you want compromise? Uh, Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on WTMJ.
0: Thank you for taking my call, Jerry. Sure. What do you think? And the hero gets kicked in the shins. You get it?
2: I'm not sure. You mean is McCarthy the hero in this example? Yes. Yeah.
0: And what did he get for it?
2: He's gotten a threat that they're going to, we're going to try to unseat him because he compromised with the Democrats to keep government open.
0: He did what he had to do. Yeah. Everybody's doing what we've got to do around here. Let's take care of business.
2: I, I think Bill, thank, thanks I, I, I mean, I guess this is it. I have a text here. I don't care. I could care less about delayed checks and layoffs. The ridiculous spending has got to stop. Balance the budget. There'll be a ton of sacrifices along the way. Uh, the ludicrous spending is, um, is unsustainable. Oh, okay, here, here's the point. This, this isn't the way to deal with this. It's, it's just not. You know, the way if, if you want to have a different approach to government, what you need to do is in this case, Republicans in 2024 need to win the White House. They need to take control of the Senate and they need to have more than a working majority, a real working majority in the House. That's how you then get stuff done simply saying, okay, we're going to take our ball and go home and we're not going to vote for any of this stuff or we're going to say no, 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 and we don't care what we do to the economy of the country. We don't care what we do to the border. And if you think the border is out of control now, and by the way, it is out of control, imagine what happens if all of a sudden we go for a week or two weeks or a month or two months with no support services being offered to border control agents. You know, that, that number, if there's 9,000 people coming in illegally every day, that number is going to jump to twelve. 20,000 a day. So it it's just it's by not compromising, by simply saying you're going to shut down the government because that's what I want to do, that that's that's what kids do. They they don't they I'm I'm not going to eat my peas. Well, okay, if you don't eat your peas, you don't get any of the rest of the food. You don't get dessert. That's okay, I'm not eating my peas. All right, so now you don't get any food, you don't get dessert. Um 855-616-1620. Jeff, I want compromise, but it's getting harder and harder to achieve it because the most hardcore, radical, influential media voices in real recent years have been stoking political division by preaching to the public that everyone needs to stand their ground and exposing politicians who don't as not properly representing their constituents. It's a sad mess. Yeah, well, you hear this a lot. Let's talk about the Republican side. You're You're a rhino. If, if you're not willing to shut down the government because of whatever the issue of the day is, if you're not willing to do this, you're a rhino. Doesn't matter how you feel about all these issues, but that, that's our, our term. And the left is, you know, the left is like that as well. Jeff, I can't stand divided government. Each side is more worried about giving in because they feel they lost instead of what's doing what's right for us people. Yeah, a- Absolutely. This is one of the reasons why. On the one hand, if I was in Congress, I think I'd be a great congressman. On the other hand, I, I think I'd probably never get elected because I'm in that situation where I would sit there and say, "Okay, look, I what what can we get through this? What is the political realities here? And if I can if I can get seventy five percent, I've I've had this argument about you know the state of Wisconsin where you have overwhelming control in both the state Senate and the state assembly by Republicans, then you got Tony Evers. I would look at a bill and say, okay, if this bill that I can get Evers to sign has 75% of the stuff I want, I'm taking that as a victory. But yet in Wisconsin, we've had people say, well, I'm not going to sign off on this because it doesn't give me 95% of what I want. Well, politics is, write this down. It's the art of the, you know, possible. Um Jeff Matt Getz says he is anti-omnimus, anti omnimus anti Omnibus and anti-continuing resolution. His methods are extreme. What is the answer to omnibus bills and politicians who proposed, purportedly use the threat of government shutdown to get compromise and continuing resolutions? I think um, you know that's it. And then he goes on to say, "Well, I, I think we need to we need to get politicians who are willing to go down, uh, the, who are willing to fight to the end." No, Jeff. I want elected officials that represent a majority of their constituents. Um yes. Um Jeff, I want the third C. You're talking about combat and compromise, which is common sense, along with the common sense that would come. Compromise, you know, it would you have much more need for improvement. Jeff, we need to work together for what's best for Americans. This concept if of if I'm right, you're wrong, has to stop. Actually that, that's kind of a, a good way to put it. Do I think do I think we spend too much Absolutely. I think we spend too much. Do I think we need to rein in stuff? Absolutely. But how do you do that? Do you think you do it when you don't have the political power by saying, "Okay, we're going to shut down the government and we're going to try to cause as much pain as possible? Or do you say, all right, let's get through this and then let's work towards, again, getting – Getting rid of divided government. Let's work towards getting more Republicans, in this case, elected to the Senate, elected to the House. Let's work on getting a Republican president. Then, you know, we have the votes to get stuff done. And here's the other reality about this. Shutting down the government, and whether you think it's fair or not, in this case, it's it would have been the Republicans that would have been crucified for this, I, I guarantee you. So it might have made Matt gets more popular when he tries to run for Florida governor governor in 2026. It might have made him more popular uh, in, in certain circles as he tries to raise money for that nationwide. But from the perspective of most Republicans, they're going to get blamed for this. And those who are in competitive districts, it would have made their job of getting reelected a lot, lot harder, moving Republicans farther and farther, further and further away from the the goal of, hey, you know, we want to take control. So I I come back, and this this, this whole thing, again, it's one of these situations that makes my head explode because – For everybody who says, oh, let's just shut it down. It's not going to be a big deal. First of all, you do not understand the politics of what is going to happen. The politics is there would be incredible blowback on Republicans, which move Republicans farther and farther away from being able to get elected. And secondly, it causes real pain on the American people. I mean real pain. You're not going to get meaningful budget reductions as long as Joe Biden's in the White House. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get meaningful budget reductions as long as Chuck Schumer runs the U.S. Senate. That's just the reality. So what you need to do is figure out, let's get what we can. While we've got the opportunity and elections matter, let's come out strong in 2024. I guess I want compromise. I want the best deal. I want the most conservative spending deal I can get within the reality of politics, not I'm going to hold my breath until I get what I want. And if that means I drown or that means I die because I'm not taking air in, I'm willing to do it. No, I'm not. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Just to give you a perspective, the, the stock market, okay, I, I thought it was going to open up big. The stock market futures were up big over the weekend because you thought there'd be a huge reaction. Everybody would happy with, the, the, the again, the, the fact that we weren't going to have a shutdown. Well, I mean, it just it's reflective of how little confidence people have in the economy that um the Dow is is now down you know, a couple hundred points, NASDAQ up slightly. But um you know the last thing this economy needed, if if you if you think you know today is disappointing, and it is, the numbers, I mean you can imagine what it would have been if the government were shut down. It, it would be just devastating. Again, I know some people don't care. Well, so so you lose you know, X percentage of money in the stock market. Well, People should care because a lot of people have money tied up in IRAs and 401ks and things like that. And it does matter when that money just disappears. Okay, I was saying this earlier, as long as we're going where people fear to tread. uh, Donald Trump is is in court in New York today. And needless to say, he is not a happy camper. (laughs) I was looking at some of the video and he's sitting at, at the table and he is he is not pleased at all. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this, because then we're going to launch into our our conversation. The Democrat attorney general, state attorney general in New York, her name is Letitia James, has filed a lawsuit. It's a civil case. And you've got criminal cases where people are accused of committing crimes. Have misdemeanors, felonies, etc., and they can go to you know prison as a result of that or jail. Then there are civil cases. You know, m- many many cases are, are civil cases. You um, you get involved in an automobile accident, so you sue the person that you allege is responsible. That is a a civil case. The New York Attorney General's Office has brought a civil case against the Donald Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, which includes Donald Trump and his kids. Um, what they allege, the allegations are that the Trump organization um, committed fraud in overvaluing assets when they were applying for loans. They wanted money from insurance companies or banks, um, and they they claimed to have X amount of collateral. And the argument is that those were false, misleading statements. And as a result of that, there's a there's a lawsuit that has been filed. Late last week, the judge who is presiding over this case, his name is Arthur Engeron, who's sort of an eccentric New York circuit – they call them justices, but it's like being a circuit court judge – issued a ruling that Trump and his company had committed fraud. Um, So he said, based on the pretrial pleadings, I find that there has been fraud committed – The suit is seeking to impose up to a $250 million penalty on Trump and his company. Also, there are allegations, and one of the things they're trying to do is revoke the business certificate for the Trump organization. And what that means is without a business certificate, they could no longer operate businesses in the state of New York, which would have a huge impact on on the um, on the ability of, uh, I mean, for example, he's a big real estate developer. Well, all these real estate companies, if you lose the certificate, you know, you could lose control of a number of the giant Trump Tower and things of of the like. So the the trial, which is given the fact that the judge has already ruled that there was fraud, the trial is going to be about some of these collateral. Issues, but you know who knows. But here's here's the interesting aspect of of this case, and this is what I want to discuss with you. Because Donald Trump, very very angry. Matter of fact, um, you know, last week he goes on to denounce he he goes on to denounce the the judge. I'm going to court tomorrow morning. This is yesterday to fight for my name and reputation against a corrupt and racist Attorney General, Letitia James, who campaigned on getting Trump, and a Trump hating judge who is unfair, unhinged, and vicious. In his pursuit of me, by the way, this isn't a jury trial. It's a trial in front of this judge. He values Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida at $18 million when it's worth 50 to 100 times that amount. His valuations are fraudulent in pursuit of election interference and worse. This whole case is a sham. See you in court, um, et cetera. And then he goes on to like, rip on the judge. But here's, here's what this case is about. Um, when Trump the Trump Organization— was taking out various loans from insurance companies and banks. They were asked to provide the value of things. Like maybe, maybe you're – let's take about like a normal person's level. You're, you're giving a statement of assets because you want to take out a mortgage. Okay. And they're asking you, you know, okay, how much do you have in your bank? How much do you have in stock accounts? Maybe they ask you, you know, what are the values of your personal effects, et cetera, et cetera. So let's say you've got a, you've got a used car and you value that car at $15,000 when the truth is maybe the car is only worth five. So, but you're, you're giving estimates. So anyhow, um, what, what happens is as they are taking out loans, the argument is that Donald Trump and the Trump Organization grossly inflated the value of these things from Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue to Mar-a-Lago in Florida to a golf course in Scotland. He's got this big resort and golf course called Turnberry, which is generally recognized as one of the best golf courses in the world. Um, I'll give you an example. Mr. Trump's triplex apartment in Trump Tower. Um, the New York State Attorney General accused Trump of overestimating its size, saying it was 30,000 square feet when it was actually 11,000. So he said that the apartment was three times the size. And obviously that if you had a bigger place, you have a higher value. The judge said that Trump's lawyers had absurdly suggested that a calculation of square footage was subjective. But it goes on and on, and they essentially say that he grossly inflated The value of all his properties. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Normally, when you have a bank fraud case, a criminal case, for example, that's brought, you have somebody that loses out on money. Um, You make false statements to the bank or the insurance company or whatever. They loan you the money. You then default. So you know they don't get the money back, right? I mean, that's how normally a fraud case works. In this case, nobody lost out on money. The banks made the loans. All the loans were paid back with appropriate interest. So it's not like there was any default. So the argument that the Trump people make and the Trump organization says is nobody was defrauded here. Nobody lost anything. Now, the state attorney general says, well, because because they claim to have more assets – and uh, more collateral essentially um they got they got better loan rates, but you know at the banks it's very, very unclear i don 't know if that's the case or or not, and given the fact that nobody is out any money it it makes it a much more difficult case to prove fraud, even if the original statements were were false, and so that's what's really complicating this case. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. With that background, is this a witch hunt? Is it a witch hunt? That's what Trump is saying, you know, and he's he's just going, you know, this is, you know, this, nobody would ever do this. These loans were all paid back. You know, um, I fully showed what I had here. Nobody lost any money at all. Um, This is... This judge is out of control. The prosecutor is trying to get me. 855-616-1620. All right, given the fact that nobody lost money, is that a factor or should that be a factor? 855-616-1620. We discuss.
1: Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: One of our texts is saying, well, you you have to understand that by by putting in for these loans and getting the money so that he could make some of these deals, he gave himself an advantage over maybe other developers who um, weren't able to get the loans. Now, that that that's going to require showing that there are other people who weren't able to get the loans. I'm, I'm just saying normally in fraud cases, you have you have a victim. And, and the victim is normally it's the insurance company, it's the bank, it's whatever the lender might be who, in reliance on the information that was presented, made loans which went south. That, that's normally what, what you have here. Hey, he fraudulently misrepresented this stuff because he needed he, – otherwise he wouldn't have gotten the loans. I don't know that that's the case at all here. And given the fact that they paid all the money back – I just think moving forward, it's going to be awfully, awfully tough to show fraud, which is, again, and if you're a regular this program, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump at all. I, I want him to go away. I want him to leave the world of politics. But I'm looking at this particular case, and, and clearly the, the judge has decided these false statements are going to be enough. Whether this holds up on appeal, I, I don't know because – Again, normally in fraud cases, you've got a clear-cut victim who lost money. In this case, nobody lost any money. The loans all got repaid with the agreed-on interest, and I don't hear the insurance companies, the lenders, complaining. I mean, I don't. No, none of them filed claims saying, "Gee, if if Trump had." I don't know. Instead of claiming he was worth five billion dollars, he had claimed he was worth three billion. If he had done that, we would have we wouldn't have made these loans. I don't think anybody's saying that. Okay, let's start with Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think of What do you make of this? I agree with you. Um, I'm no Trump fan either. I wish he would go away as
0: well. But as you said, there's no victim. I'm not a lawyer like you, but there usually has to be someone that was harmed in order for something like this to stick. And, you know, nobody was harmed um, unless, in fact, someone did claim, you know, one of the texters said, well, maybe someone else lost out. But no one was applying for the exact same loan as he was. So yeah. it's not like there's a loan that maybe someone else didn't get because he took it from them.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I also th- think, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: i uh, no, sorry. I was also going to say that. You know, I've listened to some of these statements from this prosecutor, and it does seem somewhat personal. Um, it does seem like this time and in the past, they're trying to get anything they can on this guy, and nothing has been able to stick. And when I listen to her comments and her tone, it does sound personal to me. So yeah. I wouldn't use the term witch hunt, but I do feel like they are going after him personally.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks for call, Mike. I, and I guess, I mean... I, I'm just one of the things I'm thinking of. There, there's got to be a lot of bad businesses that operate in the state of New York that are scamming people and, and things like that. That where where you do have you have true victims, you know, people who who entered into contracts and expected to have something that they they paid somebody money and they didn't get that out of there. And, and this I'm still struggling to see this, even if you accept the premise that they that they submitted false statements that he again claimed that the penthouse was thirty thousand feet when it was only. Only eleven thousand square feet. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll accept the fact that that wasn't accurate. Again, it raises the first question of you know where do, do you end up having to should you have to verify that number one who does but but secondly okay again what what's the loss? It's like you go in to buy a car. They ask you for your your financial background and you say I've got I've got ten thousand dollars in my bank account. Turns out you've only got three thousand dollars. They make the loan. So the first question is. All right, would they have made the loan if they only know it was three grand? But if you pay the loan back and so nobody loses out, is there really a victim? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Somebody was texting in saying, well, maybe, you know, if he claimed less value on his tax returns, that would be tax fraud. Well, that may very well be, but that would be a criminal action brought by the IRS. All all I'm saying is, is I think this is a stretch to demonstrate civil fraud, especially when the people who are supposedly defrauded, the banks and insurance companies who made the loan, I don't think any of them are complaining about this at, at all. Al in Grafton. Al, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
0: Hi, thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, I, would su- I would submit to you that um, there was some harm. The bank's, and maybe they'll take action subsequent to these rulings. Uh, had had the values of his real estate holdings and the like been lower, there may have been higher interest charges. Yep, maybe. And 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 they, you know, you know, I don't know the numbers. You know, a hundred million dollars in loans for the various this. If it was a one percent differential, it's a million dollars a lot of money
2: well why aren't any of um, the banks complaining about so, it none of the banks are complaining
0: well you know <laughs> this is all coming out right now that there were undervalues I don't know why they wouldn't complain I'm a share if I'm a shareholder of one of those banks that would be a question I would have to them
2: well not- I think I mean think I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off well thank but the, the okay the problem with that is all right now are you is that going to be the new standard and you know one of one of our textures here I'm a retired banker if the bank didn't agree with the value estimates they would have valued them individually. Um, Jeff, I'm – and this is a banker. I'm not a Trump fan, but don't you need to suffer a loss to sue civilly? I see no loss to anyone. Trump paid it back. Right. Well, the the argument would be maybe they they wouldn't have made the loan or maybe they could have gotten a higher interest rate. But if they charged a higher interest rate, maybe they wouldn't have gone through with the loan. I'm just saying this is not a dead bang winner when it comes to fraud because typically when you have fraud, you have – I, I'm, you, you have clear-cut losses, not this. Well, maybe they could have gotten some more interest rates, but then maybe the loan wouldn't have gone through. I'm, I'm just saying this is this is not an easy one. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Well, it will be interesting to see how all this fleshes out. Let me give you another real-world example. Let Let's say, and a number of you are making this point on on the text line. You you, you go to refinance your house. And you say, okay, my house is worth $500,000. And, you know, that's what you want to base the, the loan on. Well, most, most lenders are, aren't going to just accept your word for that. What they're going to do is they're going to come out and they're going to do an independent appraisal that's going to tell them whether it's worth $500,000 or 750000 or, or 300000 That's the point that a couple of our, our retired bankers are making, that, you know, if, if there's questions about, the solvency is this loan going to? Is there the potential that the loan is going to go bad? Um, then you know, yes, we'll we'll go out and you know we'll we'll verify this. And the argument I think the Trump Corporation is going to make is, regardless of what he said the assets were worth, there was no question that they were sufficient to cover to serve as collateral for the loans. And the evidence of that would then be that the loans were repaid. You know, so it's not like a situation where again I, I you know I, I don't have the collateral to do it. So in other words, in the, the example I was just giving with the house, okay, you say your house is worth you know five hundred thousand dollars and the appraisal says it's only worth three hundred thousand dollars, but you know, maybe the bank doesn't care because they know that, hey, you're only taking out a loan for 100000 It doesn't matter. There's enough resources to cover it. These are all just complicating things because, like I say, normally in fraud, prosecution, civil or criminal, you have somebody who is directly a loser and you have, like, the, the lender who's complaining, hey, I got ripped off. I didn't get paid back. In this case – they got paid back. Now, I understand the argument is, well, maybe maybe you could have gotten a higher interest rate or something like that, but that's, that, that's a difficult thing. And it's one of the reasons why I think this case is being brought civilly, not criminally, because if you were bringing it criminally, you could never sustain the burden of proof of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. All right, a lot of stuff coming up after the top of the hour news, including, I don't know, striking auto worker who says there's only so much abuse you can take i'll explain we'll discuss live from
1: the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show
2: now here's wtmj's jeff wagner good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the show let me tell you a story a war story Back um, in another life, my first career, I was a federal prosecutor, and I ran the organized crime drug enforcement task force for the U.S. Attorney's office in out based out of Milwaukee, but we covered the entire state. And I was responsible for prosecuting lots of the big drug organizations during the time that I was there and was running this. One of the things that I noticed is is how drug trafficking changed over over the years, and it's changed materially since I was gone. But one of the things that that happened is in the mid to really late 1980s, we saw an explosion around here of crack cocaine and crack cocaine, which is lots more powerful than regular cocaine, which is a bad thing in and of itself. But incredibly addictive, um, it it became crack cocaine was around here, largely the province of, of inner city street gangs that's just the reality and if you've ever if you've ever seen the HBO show the wire trust it is amazingly accurate as to what was going on and back in the day I used to run wiretaps and things like that but you you'd have the these largely inner city street gangs which were selling crack cocaine on street corners incredibly addictive addictive and things like that and it's where the it's where violence started exploding in the city of Milwaukee. Because I think before the 19, mid-1980s or late 1980s, 100 homicides would be unthinkable. But we, we hit that because what would happen is you'd have the these street gangs that would go to war with each other over whose, whose corner is this to sell dope on. And you'd have drive-by shootings, and then what would happen is you'd have – Okay, you know, we had a shooting on this corner. Well, here, we're going to go shoot up so and so's house. He's in this gang. And then they drive by and they shoot up the house, and it turns out to be a house that doesn't belong to the gang member and stuff. But you'd have this explosion of, of shootings. And, you know, one of my jobs was okay, let's. Let's work with the local authorities. Let's work with DEA and FBI and ATF and and let's investigate and let's use the federal resources to bring these large conspiracy cases. One of the biggest cases I handled was a prosecution of a group called the Brothers of Struggle, which was kind of an offshoot of a group called the Black Gangster Disciples who were pushing lots of crack cocaine around here. And here's just the uncomfortable truth of, of this the members of the black gangster disciples um that were involved in this indictment, they were all black. <laughs> that's that that's just it, it's what it was. And so every once in a while when and this is a lot of the street gang prosecutions as we tried to target the the violence that was associated with the trafficking of um of crack cocaine and all, it, it turned out we were prosecuting a lot of members of minority groups. And I I can remember getting static. Well, are you looking at the racial makeup of the, the people that you're prosecuting? And my response would always be, well, when you when you go fishing, you, you go where the fish are. I mean, if you could show me a, a bunch of, for example, a white guy street gang in River Hills that's selling crack cocaine and shooting up the, the streets, I'm delighted to prosecute them. But, you know, our, our resources, I'm concerned about the violence. I'm concerned about the spread of drug dealing. I'm going where the crime is. And I, I want to be colorblind when it comes to that. I mean, I don't care whether you're white or black or brown or green or whatever. I mean, I want to go where the crime that is affecting these neighborhoods are. But there was always this static about, oh, you're prosecuting too many of this type of person or that. And I'd say, I'm just prosecuting the crime. I'm trying to get these street gangs off the street because they're, they're killing people and they're spreading this poison. But that was always kind of one of the issues. I was thinking about that story If you follow me on Twitter, it's it's at JeffWagner620. I I sent out a link to a story that appears in the the local newspaper. Um, Here's the headline. Milwaukee police set foundation for change, but racial disparities in stop searches continue. The Milwaukee Police Department has laid a foundation for improved constitutional policing, but the work remaining is most challenging – Um, And then it goes on to talk about how, you know, as a result of this settlement that they made with the ACLU a number of years ago, they're they're supposed to document the different stops that they end up making. So here's what the report says. The latest report, based on numbers in 2022, is that compared to white people, black residents were eight times more as likely to be frisked by police in 2022 – in 2022, there was no significant statistical difference between white people and Hispanic people. So the argument is, okay, in contacts with the police, black people, black residents are eight times more likely to be frisked than white people. Okay, so – and then you can draw whatever conclusion that you want from that. But one of the questions I, I throw out there as I'm looking at this, this report it is simply – all right, so if you just look at the headlines, oh, black people are eight times more likely to be frisked when they're stopped by police as, as white people. Uh, I guess my my question was, where is – in the city of Milwaukee, where is the majority of crime that it occurs? And I, I think you – I mean it's not absolute and there are exceptions – But I think you can make a very strong argument that the vast majority of crime, including the vast majority of violent crime in this community, occurs in certain zip codes, and it tends to be majority-minority districts. And that's just kind of the reality of this, which means that the police are going to be investigating and patrolling certain areas— arguably more aggressive than other areas where crime is not as great. So my question was, is it possible that since crime in Milwaukee occurs disproportionately in some areas – that this could lead to a disproportionate number of certain categories of individuals, like individuals who live in high crime areas, being stopped by police. I mean, if you're showing up, okay, we've got an example. There's just there's been a there's been a shooting and we're looking for, you know, this is the description of the shooters. Well, you know, isn't it likely That the police are going to, I don't know, be more likely to stop and or frisk people who are in these high crime areas than they are in an area – I don't know where – there's no area around here where there's there's no crime, but in an area where – OK, it's not as likely on the, you know, e- the east side, a block from the lake where the houses are all worth, you know, a million and a half dollars. And I'm not saying that there's not crime there because there is, but there's a lot less crime that's going on there than is going on in certain of the other zip codes. So given the fact that some zip codes are much more prone to criminal behavior, given the fact that um, you you would anticipate that there's a much, much larger criminal presence, police presence in some of these areas because they're always responding, they're more likely to have to be responding to certain criminal activity. Doesn't it make sense that people who are residing in some of these high crime neighborhoods in their interactions with the police are more likely to be detained are more likely to be frisked, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I understand the argument would be just to to play this off completely as race, and maybe maybe there is a racial component to that, okay? And I I accept that, and that's why part of this also requires the police to to document things, and one of the things that I am told is a lot of times police don't make some of the stops that they would otherwise do because they don't want to spend all the time doing all the sorts of paperwork, and you can argue whether or not that— that really advances theories or not. I mean, if I lived in a high crime area, I would want the police to be aggressive. I would want them to be stopping people who were suspicious. If they're responding to you know, this crime or, or that crime or whatever, I want them to be doing everything they can to get guns and drugs and stuff off the street. So I, I, I get it. I understand what the headline is. Oh, you've got this racial disparity. And maybe there is a racial component to it. But I don't think that you can analyze this fairly unless and until you also look look at okay where where are the crimes that are being committed and if the crimes and the investigations and the police presence is disproportionately in a neighborhood that has a disproportionate number of this type of resident or that type of resident whether it's black or hispanic or white or you know fill in the blank it to me only makes sense that the number of police contacts is going to be greater. So, oh, uh, black people are eight times as likely to be stopped and frisked by Milwaukee police. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's the hard number, but I don't think it tells you anything unless you understand, okay, where were these stops? Where were these frisks? What was, in fact, going on? Why were they doing this? Why were they in the area? Because if you've got more cops in a particular area— It seems to me just – unless they're just doing absolutely nothing, it seems to me that they're more likely to be making stops from people who live in that area, that zip code, whatever. Just saying. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: It is interesting to me how um, it, it's interesting to me about how people perceive certain things. Now, for since September fifteenth, the United Auto Workers have been out on strike. But un- unlike what's happened in the past, and, and past UAW strikes have been against one of the individual automobile manufacturers, Ford or GM or Chrysler Chrysler is now Stellantis is, is what this is but they've been strikes and like everybody goes out on strike the the new union boss who's kind of a, got got a bit of like like marxist in him is trying to create as much disruption as possible so instead of going out on strike against a particular company what they're doing is they're doing targeted strikes. So we're going to pick a couple Ford plants, and we're going to pick a couple GM plants, and we're going to pick a couple Stellantis plants, and we're going to go out on targeted strikes. And our idea is we want to cause the company chaos, and we want to not let them figure out, you know, what we're going to strike. And we're going to try to pick. We're going to try to pick the the plants that are doing the stuff that will hurt the most. So that's why, you know, we're going after some of these companies that uh, – plants that distribute auto parts like like here in Milwaukee. And we're going to go out on strike because we hope what happens is the company won't be able to provide auto parts to dealers. So when people go in to have, you know, X auto part or I need a new fuel pump or whatever, they're not, they don't have the fuel pump. So th- that will cause as much pain as possible, which has always been an interesting way, I think, of approaching – you know, if you're in a competitive industry and you're trying to, I don't know, you want you, yeah, you want to get what you want from your your employer, but at the same time, you don't want to drive customers to other businesses. And it's not like you you don't have choices where you go with cars. But anyhow, that that's been. That's been the technique, and it's expanded like every Friday because so far they haven't been able to reach deals with Ford and GM and with Stellantis. Now, one of the reasons they haven't been able to reach deals is the fact that their demands are, I think most of us would see, considered to be out of this world. They want. They started off with saying they want a forty percent pay raise over ten years, over four years, and then and cost of living adjustments on top of the forty percent pay raise. And now I think they've brought it down to like thirty five percent, but they still want cost of livings on on top of that. They want um, a return to retiree health benefits. They want full forty hour a week pay, but they only want to work thirty two hours a week. And the, the head of Ford says, "Look, you know we." we you know right now we're under pressure from the government to switch over to electric vehicles we're investing billions of dollars in in that um and yes we're willing to give our, our members raises. I think that the number, we're willing to give them 20% raises. I think Stellantis was 15%, but you know, we're willing to give them 20% raises. And that's being scoffed at by by the union leaders. Now, I don't know what's right and what's wrong. Whenever we talk about this, there's some people who say, well, if you look at what the executive's making, you know, Ford's guy makes 21 million or GM's guy makes 29 million or vice versa, whatever it is. Oh, and that's, you know, they, they're not worth all that. Well, they are apparently worth all that in the opinion of the the people who are on the board of directors of the company, that that's their skills. I mean, who thinks Aaron Rodgers is worth, you know, $75 million a year for two years. It's, you know, the people that pay the the freight and, you know, I don't see too many, I don't know, employees of the New York jets going out on strike saying, Hey, I'm the equipment manager and I make 120 grand a year and they're paying Aaron Rodgers, 75 million. You, You don't see that, that argument that's made very much, but nonetheless, The workers have gone out on strike. That's their right to do. But there was something that caught my attention. There was a story in the Chicago, actually the Naperville Sun. Um, One of the auto plants that was hit by this this increasing number of strikes was in Naperville, Illinois. Naperville automakers stay on the picket line as UAW walkout expands. There's only so much abuse you can take. That was the headline. Caught my attention. So what they do is they go out and they interview a couple guys who are striking outside the uh, Chrysler Mopar Parts Distribution Center in Naperville last Thursday. And so they talk to a couple guys that are on the the picket line. And here's what one guy says. He says, I've been working here since 2000. It's not fair. We work hard. We're on our feet all day. Um, He makes 32 bucks an hour. Um, We're on our feet all day. We don't want to be out. Okay, then one of his buddies says, we don't want to be out here. Um, He's worked for Stellantis for 28 years. Again, he's making 32 bucks an hour plus whatever the benefits are. I'd rather be in there working, the guy says, but there's only so much abuse you can take, and we've had our share. There's only so much abuse you can take, and we've had our share. Guy makes 32 bucks an hour. They are offering, again, somewhere in the neighborhood of a 20% pay raise over a four-year period. And my guess is it will end up being slightly higher. The union wants 35% plus cost of living plus 32-hour work weeks but 40-hour pay. There's only so much abuse you can take. And now we've had our share. Okay, here, here is my question. If your employer came to you and said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to offer you a 20% pay increase and we're going to sweeten the benefits and we're going to do some of this other stuff. Now, you might not agree to that. You might still think that you're undervalued, but we're being abused. We're being mistreated. This is terrible. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I don't know how this thing is going to resolve itself. And my guess is at the end of the strike, and there will be an end to this strike, uh, the, the auto workers are going to do you know, reasonably well. And I have no problem with that. But it's this idea of we're being abused. They, they, they've they only offered us They've only offered us 20% pay raises plus these, you know, increases in benefit. But heaven forbid, you know, we're on our feet all day. You know, we're, we're sorting auto parts. They want us They want us to work for, they're only paying me 32 bucks an hour, and they're offering me, you know, a, a raise, and I've got the different benefits. I'm tired of being abused. Well, oh, man, I mean, I think most people would say, if that's abuse, bring it on. 855-616-1620. We discuss.
1: Stay tuned, Jeff Wagner returns after this on WTMJ. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Here's a text, my favorite of the day. $32 an hour is not good money! Exclamation point. That's not good money. I mean, they're on their feet all day, and they're only getting thirty-two dollars an hour, plus all the other benefits that come along with this. Um, well, oh, okay. I mean, if you can, if you can, um, if you can get it, that's. I think that's that's great. But um, that's it, Jeff. It's not the hourly wages, but why not present a percent increase across the board? I don't. That's what they're they're offering. Well, they, the union wants a 40% increase, and they want only 32 hours a week for 40 hours. And look, and I don't want to go down this route. I, I understand the class warfare. The, the argument, workers of the worker, while well, the world unite, don't you see that the CEO makes $21 million, and you guys are only make, only making $32 an hour, and, and you need, if we're paying the CEO $21 million, we need to pay you all 40% more as well? Well, the, the truth of the matter is, obviously, the value that these workers provide, if you give them all 40%. Percent pay raises, the company's going to go in the in the tank. The company cannot sustain that. The winner of this strike, the longer that goes on, it's not the workers. It's not the um it's not management. The winner of the strike, and I'll tell you, and this isn't too hard. It, it's real easy. It's Tesla, it's Nissan, it's Honda, it's Toyota. It's fill-in-the-blank, some of these other car companies that manufacture cars in the United States and are in a position – because this is – see, this is like the thing that happened with Budweiser, with with Bud Light. Some people are surprised that this boycott of Bud Light took off. Oh, I, I can't believe that people did – well, it, it it took off because people had other choices. It's not like, gee, OK, I'm going to make a stand against Bud Light, whether you agree with that or not. I'm, I'm going to make a stand against Bud Light. But here's, here's the deal. That means I have to give up drinking beer. No. I mean, you can say, okay, I'm not going to have Bud Light, and I think they're still feeling the effects of this because people, I, I like to drink light beer, so I'll, get, I'll go to Coors Light or I'll go to Miller Light or, or whatever. You have other choices that you can easily make. The same thing is true. There are multiple choices when it comes to automobiles. All right, I've got a Ford. I'm looking at cars. I like a Ford Escape. All right, but um, right now the price of the Ford Escape is going to go through the roof because, you know, they're going to make the settlement. They're going to dramatically increase their their labor costs. So what's going to happen is that's going to get passed on to consumers. And so now the, the Ford Escape is going to be $2,000 more or whatever that number might be. Fine all right, let's see. Well, now I'm going to look. What a, I want an SUV. I like the Ford Escape, but you know what? The Honda CRV is a great product or the Toyota RAV4 is a great product or whatever Nissan's, you know, um, whatever Nissan's small SUV is. That's a great product as well. People have other choices. And if, UAW workers don't think that people are going to go to those, well, you're, you're wrong. And as far as this idea of, okay, we're going to cause pain because what we want to do is we want to make it difficult for people to get auto parts, well, it, it's the same thing. You don't think customers remember this stuff? If you need... I don't know, you're, you're, you you're need a part for your car. And so far, I don't think the strike has really impacted that dramatically. Down the road, if this continues another month or two months, maybe that's a different story. But you take your Ford Escape to the Ford dealer, and they tell you, we can't make this repair because, you know, we don't have this particular part because the UAW is out on strike. Don't you think that the next time somebody is in the market for a car— You think that they're going to be inclined to run back and say, okay, well, I'm going to buy the Ford Escape. I like the Ford Escape, but I don't know, you know, who knows what's going to be going on with labor in the next two years. And I don't want to get into a situation where I can't buy this. I can't get my car fixed because there's no parts. Whereas if I buy the Honda or I buy the Toyota or I buy the Nissan or buy whatever, you know, I'm I'm buying it from these non-union shops in general, and I'm not going to have to worry about this disruption. Um... Yeah, Jeff, um I'm sure that one of our texts again said $32 is not good money. I'm sure the mass um, um I'm sure the mass majority of the workers don't have a college degree making $32. I guess I'm I'm the sucker for um you know this. Um, Jeff, our Johnson Control CEO was making ridiculous money when he was forced out. He got a huge parachute payout. Meanwhile, all the employees kept working. Sorry that our union automaker employees are spoiled. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't care if you want to, if you want to say, okay, we're going to walk the picket lines because we, we want more money. I respect that. You know, that's, that's collective bargaining, but this idea that we're being abused, that's what got my attention. Um, Jeff, abuse, what kind of abuse is worth a lot of money? This is a victim mentality. At my company, I make um, 2650 an hour, and even my colleagues use language like that. I blame it on the victim mentality, which is bred inside the union. This is a simple negotiation for an agreement. The union has funds for the strike. If the union runs out of strike funds, we'll see who returns to the abuse. Well, that's one of the reasons, actually, why the the union hasn't gone out, why all why all one hundred forty six thousand United Auto Workers haven't gone out on strike at once. Now there's like twenty some thousand, I think that's the last number I saw, because you make the strike funds last longer, and it's not a, a bad strategy. I just don't know what the end game ends up being. Um, yeah, Jeff, thirty-two dollars per hour, sixty-four thousand dollars annually at forty hours pay per week. In many cases, people don't have college degrees. I think that that's excellent money. Plus, it also you, you've also got benefits. And I'm not saying that people don't work hard. That that's not my point. And I don't oppose people getting more money. At the same time, we're being abused. You know, we're being abused, and that's what I, I think is. Um, you know, that's um, that's it. Jeff, I've been a union steam fitter for 23 years. I'm union through and through. That being said, I'm not going to argue with their wage demands, but to ask for 40-hour pay for 32 hours work is ridiculous. This is the type of stuff that gives unions a bad name. Uh, get a decent wage. Get paid for what you work um, that would equate to 50 pay days off in a year. That's the equivalent equivalent of two months of paid vacation. Yeah. See, when Joe Biden decided to go on the picket lines, that was always one of the questions, and he's never answered this. Okay, okay, you're supporting the UAW. I, I get it. Fine. What what do you think about their demand for 40 percent or 35 percent pay increases? Well, he doesn't say anything. What do you think about you know a 40 hour pay for a 32 hour work week? Well, he doesn't say anything. Well. I mean, okay, you can say I'm supporting the union, but all right, Mr. President, if, if you're really supporting these demands, all right, explain to me what that's going to do to the rest of the economy and where these prices are going to come from. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I, I was struck by the notion of we're, sti- we're tired of taking this abuse. Hm. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: More Jeff Wagner right after this. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Okay, Donald Trump, I I just, I understand that Trump says stuff to to get headlines. And I understand that maybe he says stuff that, you know, is designed to attract attention. And and maybe, maybe everybody goes, yeah, 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 right on. But at, at the same time, I don't care if you're a conservative or liberal. Every once in a while, some of this rhetoric is kind of, I don't know. Frankly, it's – what's the word I'm looking for? What's the word I'm looking for? Nuts. It's nuts. Okay. Here, look, I, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I am I, – I, when it comes to out-of-control crime, I am incredibly frustrated. And, and one – and, and, you know, pick a category of crime and you see that. But one of the things that we're seeing just explode is, is retail theft – you know, shoplifting. And you saw the story, the organized, you know, shoplifting thing. You had 100 plus looters, you know, kids that are wearing the ski masks that were breaking into windows and robbing the Apple Store and Lululemon and Foot Locker and, and all these other places in downtown Philadelphia. You have the, the incidence of shoplifting, both organized and otherwise target what was it target closing, nine stores in urban areas. You know Walmart ended up closing the store on the northwest side of Milwaukee because they, they just the, the theft was so great. Then you have all these politicians that'll come out and they'll say, "Oh this is terrible that, you know Walmart is closing or what no, it, they're closing because crime is out of control. They are a business. and rather than denouncing the business for For closing, because of crime, you know what the politicians really should be doing is dealing with the underlying problem of crime and and you've got a couple of reasons for it, and then you've got all these various soft on crime district attorneys, including the one that they have in Milwaukee County, John Chisholm, who just they're they look the other way, and it's like the reason why people steal stuff is because they can they know that there's very, very little chance that they're going to get caught. And they know that even if they do get caught, there's very, very little chance that there will be any sort of significant consequence. Chances are the case is never going to get prosecuted. And if it does get prosecuted, it's going to get pled down. And if it does get either pled down or you do get a conviction, you know that there's going to be some judge just slaps the wrist. And it's one of the reasons why we've had this spiral of 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 retail theft, which is just devastating communities and it's part of the product, again, of this sort of soft on crime generation of prosecutors that we've seen. So I, I'm, I, I believe that there needs to be accountability. And I, need the, you know, I believe that people who are involved in this organized retail theft need to be held accountable. And I, they, they need to go to jail. So I believe that. All right? So that's the background. So don't jump on me saying, Jeff, you're suddenly going soft on crime when you comment on this. Here's the headline in USA Today. Trump calls for police to shoot shoplifters as they leave the store. Former President Donald Trump recently gave a glimpse into how his next administration would urge law enforcement to handle shoplifters if he wins the White House in 2024 by shooting them in the store. Quote, we will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving the store, end quote, he said Friday during a speech to California Republicans. Um, um, calling on Trump shoplifters to be shot comes a day after he admired a Glock during a South Carolina campaign stop and said he wanted to buy one. Now, now look, at the risk of being, you know, at the risk of being, okay, then, then he goes on to say, um, "The word, the word that they'll shoot you we'll get out within minutes and our nation in one day will be an entirely different place trump said friday of shooting shoplifters there must be retribution for theft and destruction and the ruination of our country okay let's let's take a step back here okay i i don't disagree with the idea that there needs to be he used the word retribution there needs to be consequences for theft and destruction and the ruination of the country. I agree with that. That is something, if you're a regular listener to this show, you know I preach all the time. There needs to be consequences for criminal behavior. There needs to be consequences for bad behavior. Having said that, he wants to shoot shoplifters in the store. Really, the word is that the, if the, the word that they'll shoot you will get out within minutes in our nation, and one day it will be an entirely different place. No, what's probably going to happen in that event is you're going to have the shoplifters that will then come into the stores armed to the teeth, and they will get into ro- ro- roving gun battles, and you'll have store employees and innocent bystanders who are shot as well. I, I, I'm deaf on shoplifting, right? I, I think that there needs to be aggressive law enforcement in connection with this, this idea that sometimes you have employees who try to detain shoplifters. Um, that that they are that they're fired. I think that that's ridiculous. Company policies, notwithstanding. But at the same time, the, the idea that you have security guards who would be pulling out handguns and and shooting somebody who who walks out with you know a, a case of diet coke or a, a shopping cart with three or four, full with three or four things of a laundry detergent. It's kind of like, really? Do you really mean that? And if you're running for president. If you don't really mean it, why would you say it? Just asking, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We have a couple of texters who are saying, "Well, what's wrong with Trump saying let's shoot shoplifters?" Okay, let me let me just take a step back here. And again, this is I I, I think. 25 years here at WTMJ and another couple more up the dial. You know, I I think I have with my background, I mean, I I think I have some credentials when it comes to, you know, talking about dealing with crime and things like that. We don't have a death penalty in the state for people who commit multiple murders. I've been arguing for, you know you know thirty thirty five years that you know maybe capital punishment in cases of extreme sort of situations would in fact be warranted and and I can't get that through so we we don't have capital punishment for somebody that kills five or six people, but you want to essentially have capital punishment. For, for people who are shoplifting stuff, I mean, come on. And, and, and I get – look, I'm as frustrated as anybody else is when it comes to this whole notion of people who are stealing things and stuff of the like. I get it. I understand the frustration. But let's let's have a moment of clarity here. We, we, we can't be executing shoplifters in, in stores. We can catch them. We can tase them, we should be able to detain them, we should be prosecuting them, and if it's appropriate, we should be putting them in jail or prison. But that's far different than pulling out a piece and just starting to shoot up places because somebody's walking out of a store with a cart full of laundry detergent, right? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
1: Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI-HD2 Milwaukee from the Annex Wealth Management Studios. This is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station.
2: This is Jeff Wagner, so glad to have you with us. I've been telling a couple of war stories for day. Back in the day, um, we were, when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, one of the things that we would do in, in drug prosecutions a lot of times is we would, we would look at Tax records of individuals, because what you would do is you could look at, all right, if you have somebody that's got all sorts of stuff, they're driving around in a Lamborghini. um, One of the things you'd want to find out is, okay, well, how much money are they reporting? And if they're, you know, an ice cream delivery person who's, you know, maybe making back in the day, you know, twenty grand a year, and they're spending. You know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in cash. Well, maybe there's an inheritance or something like that, but you want to see what they're telling the IRS. you want to see you know you want to look at bank accounts and things like that in order to get somebody's tax records, I will tell you as a federal prosecutor the the hoops that you had to jump through I mean, you you had to submit affidavits. it had to go up to Washington. It had to be signed off on by people at the IRS and at justice. I mean it was it was a major project, but that's okay. I understand that because tax records are supposed to be confidential and you don't want it to be easy to get them and there needs to be like a legitimate in this case an investigative purpose to do it. So you you could get them but it was just – it was a pain. And so that's why I was so interested a couple years ago. Remember when there was the leak of the Trump tax records? Remember there MSNBC Rachel Maddow was just all excited. Here we're going to have accountants on, and because you know Donald Trump's tax returns from. for it was two thousand seven, I think two thousand eight. We, we they've been released, and so we have all this return information. And you remember this was this was all the subject about it. And, and actually, it turned out to be kind of much ado about nothing because the numbers weren't weren't out of whack. I mean, it's not like he paid no taxes or anything like that. But but his tax return information. I don't think the tax returns themselves, but the return information, the numbers on the different lines that that had been reported. So my point was. This, it's a big deal. Not, I mean, if people believe Donald Trump committed tax fraud, fine, the the IRS can bring charges, you know, that's all well and good. But the idea that you have somebody that has access to these, that's decided to take it upon themselves to release this information to the public, that's an outrage and it is a crime. I bring this up because Friday, Charles Littlejohn, 38 of Washington, D.C., was charged with one count of unauthorized disclosure of tax information, and is now looking at up to five years in prison. And while they're a little bit vague about this, this guy apparently worked um, for an IRS contractor from 2017 to 2021 and is alleged to have stolen tax records from 2018 to 2020. Now, it's not just the Trump tax returns, apparently, that he he got, but um – He also provided tax records of other wealthy Americans and then delivered them to the New York Times and to other places. Now, it's interesting because you have like the newspapers say, well, even though we know this stuff was illegally obtained, we didn't commit any crime in doing that. So we're going to go ahead and publish it. And I've always had problems with, with that, the idea that, oh, it's not our, we, you know, we didn't commit the crime. So even though it was it was obtained through a crime. We're going to go ahead and put it out there. I, I have always had issues with that, but th- this is a situation where I don't care if you love Trump or hate Trump, and I don't care if you you know think that, okay, rich people, they deserve to have their tax returns made public or, or whatever. That That's fine. This is a crime, and they finally caught at least this one guy. My big question is, how was he able to do this for three or four years, and are the, the record keeping so sloppy that you can get access to this? Inquiring minds want to know, but he has, in fact, been charged in information, and that's typically an indication that he's reached a plea deal. When we come back, where do we go from Joe? Stick around.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Hey, I neglected to mention at the beginning that in addition to listening to us while we do spoken word radio, if you want, you can also watch us now. We have our own YouTube, WTMJ YouTube station. So you can go to YouTube and just put in WTMJ and hit the live button or go to WTMJ.com and you can hit the listen live button, which allows you to hear the audio or the watch live button. And a number of people do that. And we are live streaming from our studio. Always a lot of fun. Okay, I will be the first to acknowledge that over the years I have collected some weird stuff. Now, I don't necessarily view it as a collection, but I've told this story before huge fan of the late Jimmy Buffett and over the years I used to buy a bunch of Jimmy Buffett t-shirts you know they'd they'd I'd, I'd go to if I'd go to the concerts I'd buy the different concert t-shirts if um, I'd go to Margaritaville and Key West or in Las Vegas or whatever I'd, I'd buy t-shirts and they used to come out with all these different t-shirts I probably have over hundred t-shirts and my, my wife just kind of rolls her eyes at that and many of the things I do deservedly so and I've, I've told the story before and it's true I'm convinced that when I pass away there's, She's going to take all these T-shirts and she's going to put them on a big clothes rack and they're going to be out in the front lawn and the sign's going to say, Jeff's dead, T-shirts for free. I have no doubt that that's what's going to happen. Now, I don't necessarily think of myself as a T-shirt, Jimmy Buffett T-shirt collector, but I, I guess to an extent I am. I know people – I know a guy who doesn't drink. But he, every year or at least years ago I, – and I forget what the whiskey was. I don't know if – I don't know what the bourbon was. I don't know if it was, if it was Wild Turkey or – or it was Jim Beam or whatever, but every year they, he doesn't drink. But they used to come out with these like ceremonial uh, uh, the, display things, the, these these containers. Um, and they were shaped like i I think keep thinking they were they were shaped like turkeys or something, which is why it might have been wild turkey. but he used to buy it every year and and he still has them. They're like like in his basement. you've got you've got this this and he doesn't even drink, but you've got all the, this stuff that that's down there. i, I know somebody who collects golf balls. He, he finds golf balls and then just collects them. He's got this huge storage thing of. You've got, you got a storage facility that's kind of full of golf balls, but it, it, it doesn't matter. I know people that collect baseball cards, and, and they don't necessarily do it for the, the value. They just do it because they like to collect baseball cards. So I, I understand there, there's a lot of people collect comic books. People do all sorts of things, and it's, it's apart from just, hey, I'm collecting comic books because I think they might appreciate in value. It's like I'm collecting comic books because I like to collect comic books. Okay, so I, with that backdrop— There was a story in the New York Times yesterday that caught my attention. Then the headlines grab me, and then I read them. What kind of person has a closet full of Nazi memorabilia? At the Ohio Valley Military Society's annual show of shows, there's plenty for sale that isn't Nazi memorabilia. All sorts of mementos from all sorts of wars, Civil War caps, antique pistols, Purple Hearts, Samurai swords, World War I trench kits. But there is a lot of Nazi memorabilia. At this year's show of shows, which took place in February in Louisville, there were nearly 2,000 tables, and my best guess is that at least half had Nazi items, and often only Nazi items for sale. There were Nazi flags, busts, helmets, lugers, cutlery, batons, an autographed photo of Hitler, a small brass swastika pin could be picked up for 20 bucks, an SS serving bowl with gold engraving, a $1,000, a yellow and white gold Luftwaffe pilot observer badge adorned with 170 diamonds, you could have it for $130,000. And then you know, the, the author you know, goes on to say he's following all these people, and and it, there's this booming trade in Nazi memorabilia. Um, and he goes on to write that you know, it doesn't matter what this is. It's, it's probably for sale. And if you have items that allegedly belong to or were touched by the spirit of a major Nazi personality, most often Hitler, they can be extro- uh, extremely – expensive and so there it goes on and on and the story just talks about how you have especially with the internet you have all these people who are are trading in Nazi memorabilia and there's no there's no laws against this at all in some European countries there are laws against the display of Nazi memorabilia but there's no laws against the, the sale or trade or anything like that. So the point of this story is, you know who 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 collects this who collects nazi memorabilia and is there something wrong with somebody who would do that our number is 855-616-1620 which is the old national bank talk and text line now remember there was a dispute a while back, where we were talking about like the, these reenactors, whether it's Civil War reenactors, and the question is, okay, who, who's, who's going to want to be a Confederate soldier, and can you imagine why anybody would be a Confederate soldier, or you know, World War II reenactors, where you know you've got you know you've got the Allies, and then you have got the Nazis. And the argument would be, well, who would dress up as a Nazi and pretend to fight in one of these battles? Our number is 855-616-1620. Do you find it odd that anyone would choose to collect World War II memorabilia, but particularly Nazi memorabilia? 855-616-1620. We discuss.
1: This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ.
2: Eight five five six one six one six twenty. This story in the New York Times, and it's a long story, and it goes on. and The bottom line is, the reporter is is appalled by the fact that people are are collecting Nazi material. Now, at the same time, I mean, a lot of this stuff, uh, I mean, a lot of these things, I mean, they're they're were were obtained by, for example, U.S. soldiers who, like, grabbed the flags and grabbed the different documents as they were, as they were winning the war and things like that. So, I mean, if, you're, if you collect Nazi memorabilia, does that make you a neo-Nazi, or does it make you somebody who's interested in historical artifacts? 855-616-1620, Johnny in Milwaukee. Johnny, you're in WTMJ. Hello.
0: Hey, how's it going?
2: Good. What do you think? Is, this, is it weird to collect Nazi stuff?
0: No, I I think if it could be, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, why well, is it okay to collect things from the Union Army, but the atrocities committed by the Union Army towards Native Americans forever is, I mean, insane. And that's seen as acceptable. So, or collecting Japanese military stuff, is it not just as terrible? Or are you just in the history?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, thanks to culture. I guess, see, that's kind of where I, I look at, or I, is... It would, would this be something that has an interest in, to me? No. I mean, do I, do I, do I want to have – gee, I want to buy a bunch of iron crosses and display them in my living room or in my man cave. No. That, that's not something that has any sort of appeal to me a, at all. But I, I understand that people collect sort of different things. I guess I look at this and say you, what you're talking about is historical artifacts and there, there's a lot of collectors of historical order, And when it comes to war memorabilia, lots of people like – you have these people who get into collecting different things, whether it's – you ever watched the show Pawn Stars on History? It's always amazing to me. People will be coming in and they'll be bringing this stuff. This was, this was from World War II or this goes back to World War I or whatever. And there's a huge market for these kind of things. And, and people end up paying good money for it. Now, again, this isn't – it's not my thing. And, you know, would I go to a – would I would I go to a show with historical memorabilia? Yeah. Would I be attracted to wanting to buy Nazi stuff? No, that's not the, the appeal. But at the same time, if you were a dedicated World War II collector, I could see this. You know, in addition, what they're saying is that apparently – a lot of the people that do these collections is, is their, their completest. In other words, they, they get started with, with something and they want to, you know, finish it out and complete that sort of stuff. I mean, I don't I, – the story of the New York Times goes on to question like the psychology of people who are doing this. And I, I guess I just – I don't accept the fact that, you know, people who are necessarily – if you're a, a World War II collector – and included in your collection are are things that involve, you know, the German army or Nazi stuff. I don't think that that means that you're harboring any Nazi sympathies. I think it probably means that you are, by and large, you know, interested in history any more than the fact that I, I've, I've told the story before. I mean, I, I read lots and lots of books, and I'm kind of fascinated, but with, I mean, World War II, I think, is a fascinating time. I read a lot of stuff about, um about. Great Britain, I'm reading a book right now called The Crown in Crisis, which is the, the abdication um, right before, you know, World War II, the abdication of, um, you know, King, what was it, King Edward, you know, and and because he wanted to marry the American woman. But, you know, he had Nazi sympathies and things, and it's kind of an interesting thing, and uh, I, I, that's the book that I'm reading now, and I've got another one I'm going to read soon about you know, um, Americans that stood with Great Britain during the the beginning parts of the war and things like that. These these are all fascinating. I'm interested by history. Now, I don't collect historical artifacts. It's just not my thing. I mean, after all, I mean, I've got, I don't where would I put it. I've already got, you know, space for all these Jimmy Buffett t-shirts. But I I guess I don't look at this and say, oh, if you're a World War II collector, just like if you're a reenactor and, you know, you've got a, a, a Nazi uniform, a German army uniform, or you've got, you've got a, a, a Confederate army uniform that doesn't make you a, a racist. That means you're, in a, you're somebody in a, its history. And if you're going to have these reenactments, you've got to have the quote-unquote good guys and you've got to have the bad guys. And to not understand that, and to be outraged about this stuff, I think just ignores kind of the history. So I, I don't think it makes you – could it make you weird? If, you know, if you're out there and you're collecting all this Nazi memorabilia, yeah, I guess. But just because that's what your thing is and that's what your World War II collection is, I don't think that in and of itself says anything about you other than that's what your historical interest is. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
3: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Jeff, my father was in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. He came home with a Nazi flag and a German Walter PPK pistol. The pistol is stamped with the mark of an officer. Being a World War II history buff, I'm keeping those items. My uh, father was also there when they liberated one of the concentration camps in Germany. Yeah, I mean, again, would this be... My thing, no, but I mean, I can understand why people, especially if you're into historical collecting, I can easily understand why people would be doing that. All right, here's the latest thing that has the ACLU's undies in a bundle. One of, the, um, one of the things that we hear a lot is, you know, you, you have people that are released on stupid low bails, and they go out and they commit other crimes. And then, you know, we all ask, Okay, who thought it was a good idea to release these people on these stupid low bails and didn't you realize that there was probably a good chance that there would be a reoffense? And you know, we, we all agree with that, but there doesn't appear to be any sort of movement among either the judges or the court commissioners to do stuff to keep obviously dangerous people in jail. What is one of the best indicators? about whether somebody is going to commit crimes in the future. Think about it. Think about it. Well, it's whether they've committed crimes in the past, right? I mean, I I say this... I mean, I I say this all the time, you know, it is in fact possible that one day somebody wakes up and says, hey, today's the day I'm going to go pick up a gun and I'm going to go out to the parking lot at a coal store and I'm going to stick that gun in the face of some lady and I'm going to carjack her car. It is entirely possible that you just might wake up and say, hey, this is what I'm going to do on a Monday morning. More likely, you have been engaged in all sorts of criminal behavior over time leading up to that decision to carjack that lady in the Coles Department parking store uh, the Kohl's department store parking lot. And, and again, it might be your first time at the rodeo, but chances are you have done other things, and maybe you've been caught for some of those things, but you haven't been caught for others. So here is the deal. State senators heard testimony last week on a bill that would result in higher bail for thousands of people who are charged with crimes in Wisconsin. And the reason we need this is because you can't trust the court commissioners and you can't trust the judges to do the right thing. So here's the deal. Under the legislation that I assume, I don't know, would pass the Assembly and would pass the State Senate and who knows what Evers would end up doing with this, but under the bill, the judge or a court commissioner would be required – to set bail in the amount of at least $5,000 when a defendant has a past bail-jumping conviction. The requirement would apply even for nonviolent misdemeanor charges like disorderly conduct or retail theft. So if you're charged with a crime and they look at your criminal history and you've been convicted of bail-jumping in the past, in other words, you've been charged with a crime, you have violated the terms and conditions of your release, and you've been convicted, and then you're charged with another crime, well, yeah, bail would have to be at least $5,000. Because why? Because by setting bail before, it did not work. Um, And of course, the Republicans who are pushing this say far too many repeat offenders and bail jumpers are being released on low or no cash bail only for them to commit another crime. The ACLU predictably has its undies in a bundle saying the bill could drastically increase the number of Wisconsinites held in jail before trial. Yeah, yeah, it might, might, might do that. But what does that tell you? It tells you if, look, first of all, if you don't want to be held on $5,000 cash bail, don't don't jump bail in the first place and get yourself convicted of it and then secondly don't commit another crime it's it's pretty self-evident to that ACLU says, when you think about the risk of job loss, the risk of losing housing, the impact on child custody and parental rights for folks that are even spending a few days or weeks and months incarcerated pretrial, it's not keeping our state and community safer. Of course, it's committing our keeping our states and community safer. Of course, it is doing that because if you're being held, you're not out on the streets committing more crimes. And this only applies to people for whom there is a history of of violating the terms and conditions of their release. Now, the bill also goes farther, and it says for somebody who is accused of a violent crime, that would also mandate a bail of at least $10,000 if the person had a past violent crime conviction. So, in other words, if you're convicted of sexual assault or robbery or carjacking, um, violent crimes, and you are accused of another crime— doesn't mean that you couldn't get out on bail, but it means that, you know, the bail has to be sufficient to guarantee your appearance and that you're not a danger to the community. So in that case, it would be 10000 bucks. These two provisions are, to me, just self-evident and really, really, really – did I say really? – really good ideas. Um, would, would Tony Evers sign them? Um, that's, of course, another question. But I think this is one of these examples, and this is what happens – When you you see what's been going on in the court system for the last couple decades, this is the effect of soft on crime district attorneys, turn them loose judges, a community that is just unhappy, upset, and not satisfied with people who are accused of violent crimes being released over and over and over again. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
3: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to talk about this story, but you know, it 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 deserves mentioning, and I need to give Isaac, who's producing the show today, we need to give our PG thirteen warning because this is it, it deals with a couple adult concepts. So I understand that people listen to us driving around in cars, and there might be those little pictures with big ears and. Um, so again, PG 13 warning and come on back in five minutes or so when we're done with the story, but it's, it's out there. So always give people a little bit of a warning time and notice to do that. Um, all right, this is, I, I heard about this on, on Saturday cause one of the people that was there, had, had, actually sent me an email about this. It's being reported by the Badger Institute, which is, a I describe described Badger Institute. It's, it's um, it, as a conservative Think tank. They do a a lot of really, really, I I think, interesting work. Don't always agree with everything that's out there, but they do good work. So here's the headline: Protesters at Madison Black Conservatives event expose cells and progressive desperation. Um, And so at UW Madison, they had they had a it was like a seminar, and it was a discussion on black conservatism. It was called Black Conservatism: Past, Present. Present and future. It's hosted by the Center for the Study of Liberal Democracy, and what they did is there was a live presentation, but you could also watch it on Zoom. You could do the the Zoom meeting. So what ended up happening is you had five prominent Black conservatives who participated in the discussion. Um, Dr. Carol Swain, professor of political science at Kentucky State University. Dr. Wilfred Riley, Deontay Johnson, founder and president of the Black Conservative Federation, um, and and then others as well. So you've got this presentation, it's in person, and the purpose of this is they're talking about, well, again, the role of black conservatism. And and I will tell you, one of the things that is very, very scary to media elites and the left is the fact that you have – that there's even, that there's a possibility of having black conservatives. And, and this is, it, and it go, it starts with Clarence Thomas, and it moves from there. The idea that you, oh, I can't believe that anybody who could be black could also be conservative. And it really kind of threatens the the overall, you know, concepts and stuff and the uh, media, and the whole concept of this. But anyhow, so you've got this discussion that is going on. And again, it, it's live and they're online And apparently um, portions of the online event were projected onto a large screen behind the panel in the auditorium. So what happens is after the speakers make their presentations, they do a question and answer period. At that point in time, somebody hacks into the Zoom call and um, someone online begins to speak over one of the panelists, And at that point in time, the moderator says, okay, mute your your microphones. The interrupter then responds by a string of obscenities and vulgarities that I can't come close to saying on the radio. Um, While students were then helping out with the program, hurriedly worked to cut off the sound because you have somebody who's hacked in and is now like screaming obscenities. Apparently a couple other people who are on the Zoom call here's the PG-13 thing, started showing close-up images of genitals and people pleasuring themselves, what appeared on the screen. So clearly this was this organized effort at trying to disrupt this concert. So here's what we're going to do. They disagreed with our speakers. They sought to to, shut them down. One person spoke reprehensible things over the audio feed before we shut it down. At the same time, others used the chat feature to write horrible things. And then, of course, you've also got people that are doing, you know, exposing themselves on this, all in an effort to try to shut this down because heaven forbid that people could get together and even talk about the possibility that there's, you know, that there are black conservatives. Um, Jeff, I think this is, one of, this is what one of the, uh, the people was telling the audience. I think the left is so well-coordinated, and so they decided they're not going to protest on campus or risk themselves. They get online and hide, and they do these things. That's where we are as a society. Whoever hijacked this program, they think they've done something great. They are so, so very ignorant. Um, Again, and I just I bring this up because I don't care about the conference one way or the other, but the fact that you have some people who are so very challenged that this is this is what their response is going to be. Let's hack into this. Let's do these despicable things in an effort to disrupt it. And I will be curious if this story makes its way into the mainstream media, because I guarantee you. If this was a liberal seminar being held at UW or UWM or Whitewater or Stevens Point or wherever and you had a conservative group that had done the same thing, hacking into the feed, screaming vulgarities, screaming obscenities, and then having some people that are exposing themselves on the video feed, I guarantee you if that had happened – you would see front-page stories in most of the local newspapers, and it would be the lead story in most electronic media accounts. Will anybody pick up this story? Time will tell. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
3: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Okay. It is time for a little puff love. The uh, the Brewers it had a wonderful season. Just I mean I I I, I mean they 92 wins and and that's any time a, a team hits 90 wins that that's the sign of an incredibly successful season. They just blew away All the the challengers in the National League Central, they ended up with the third best record in the National League. And if you look at the size of their payroll and you look at the fact that um, they have a lot of players, particularly position players, who are playing that – Nobody ever heard of before the start of the the season, Andrew Monasterio, or who weren't on the team at the start of the season, whether it's, you know, Josh Donaldson or some others. I mean, it's been – look at the outfield. I mean – Sal Freelich and Mark Connor and all these different players that just even weren't on the team. And to look at this team and look at the payroll and see that they've won 92 games, and part of it is the strength of their their pitching staff, but part of it is a lot of clutch hitting and things like that. No matter how the season ends, I think you have to say that they've done a a remarkable job. It has been a very, very special season. And for, what, I guess the fifth time in the last six years, they are back in, in the playoffs. All right, and I actually, I think they have a chance to do okay in in the playoffs. I mean, I actually, if they win this first series, then they go to play the Dodgers, Los Angeles Dodgers, in a best-of-five. And I candidly, I think they match up decently with the Dodgers. Dodgers won more games than they did. Dodgers have a bigger payroll. Dodgers have bigger-name players. But I think the Brewers match up extremely well. So the way this works for people who haven't been keeping score at home, the Brewers play. It's a best of three series. The games are tomorrow night at six, Wednesday night at six. And then if you need a third game, it will be Thursday time to be determined. So my, my guess is it'll be an evening game, too. But who knows? So that that's the way it stands now. The Brewers are playing the Arizona Diamondbacks, who are a very, very good team in themselves. Diamondbacks are coming to Milwaukee. Matter of fact, Wisconsin's Afternoon News, John McCure and Greg Matzik, they're broadcasting. They're out at the stadium today, and so they're, they're doing their show there, and I'm sure they'll be out at the stadium tomorrow doing their, their show there as well. So you've got the Arizona in town. If the Brewers win two out of three— then what happens is they advance to the division series they'll go out to Los Angeles and they play LA in a best of 5 series i think the first game is saturday and then the next game is monday but you know you got to if you you just take care of business and you have to win so th- this is a big deal you know as far as the playoffs go now if you're a regular listener you know that i am a um, i've got a partial season ticket package and they they sent out the notice so oh, about a month a month and a half ago about how if you Decide that you're going to re-up for next year. You could get first dib on the tickets, and I, I did. So I have I have a pair of tickets to the games, um, all the different playoff games. If they go to the World Series, got tickets for that. And so I'm kind of excited. My buddy, who I go to the games with, recently relocated to Williamsburg, Virginia. Well, he's coming back into town. He's on his way now. Sometime tonight's going to get here, and he's going to stay with us until, depending on how long the Brewers' playoff run goes, I mean, he'll, we're probably going to have a house guest, and that's that's fine. We, we welcome him. But, I mean, I'm excited about the opportunity to go to the game tomorrow night and Wednesday night. Now, if, if they end up losing, I might be bummed out, but it's just, I, I'm excited about that. I'm thrilled with playoff baseball and all those things. So I was listening to one of our news reports earlier in the day and I was somewhat surprised that they say that there's still tickets that are available. Our number, we only have a couple minutes, our number is 855-616-1620 which is the Old National Bank talk and text line. It would, in my opinion, be an absolute travis. Now I'm going to use the word I'm thinking of. The word is disgrace. It would be a disgrace if Following what a great season the Brewers have, if American Family Field wasn't sold out, I'm talking about packed to the gills for the game tomorrow night, the game Wednesday night, if there's a Thursday game, that game Thursday, and all the games moving forward. This is, Milwaukee is a great sports town. And I understand some of the explanations I get sometimes as well, you know, we don't necessarily have winners. Well, you've you got a winner. You have a team that has done an absolutely tremendous job, and it, it should be standing room only tomorrow night, it should be standing room only Wednesday night, and it should be standing room only for every game moving forward. Baseball fans of Wisconsin, unite. 855-616-1620. I am going to be extremely disappointed because if 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 this game you know isn't completely sold out. now one of our one of our listeners is saying, well, tickets are available because nobody knows the times until last night. All right, you know may, maybe that's a factor, but now we know the times. six o'clock tomorrow night, six o'clock Wednesday night, you got to go buy those tickets eight five five six one six one six twenty. will you be disappointed if the games aren't sold out? And is there any justification? Given how wonderful the season the Brewers have had, is there any justification for the game not being sold out? Back to discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
3: Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this.
1: WTMJ, W277CV, and WKTI HD2 Milwaukee from the Annex Wealth Management Studios. This is News Radio WTMJ,
2: a good karma brand station. And this is Jeff Wagner. I'm sorry, I still did, I cannot believe that there are still tickets available to the first round playoff game. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's it's a best two out of three. I mean, it's lose and you're done. Jeff, I'm a baseball fan. However, not everyone has the luxury of time and money to go a baseball game. It's that simple. Well, okay, I understand not everybody has the luxury of time or money to do that, but we're, we're talking about the state of Wisconsin. You cannot tell me that there aren't I mean that I mean I see what happens on opening day. You can't tell me that there aren't forty five thousand people that are out there or forty two thousand or whatever it would be who who would show up for who would show up for the playoff games for goodness sakes um eight five five six one six one six twenty Jeff, we're going to the game tomorrow well that that's good. then I'm gonna be working at x golf the following night i my my um my wife and a couple of her friends went up to that x golf the other night um you know that's that's that. Um, Jeff, lots of high school athletics going on. Not going to miss my daughter's games for the Brewers. Well, okay. I mean, at, at the same time, you know, your daughter's going to be playing all sorts of games. The Brewers' playoff games don't come along that often. Um, yeah, then I've got somebody who, like, like tying it into the toxic Republicans. Okay, you. you if, if that's your attitude, I'm not going to the games because of the Republicans. You really do. What's the phrase? Yeah, I need to get a life. Um, Jeff, my husband passed on the opportunity to go tomorrow night due to his work schedule and the kids' after-school stuff. I know everyone has an excuse, but life goes on despite all the playoff baseball. Yeah, I understand that, that life goes on, but at the same time, I, I mean, not everybody has you know kids' high school games that they have to go to or something like that. Somebody says the construction – this is – now take it from me. I Look – I hate driving through all the construction. There, there's no question about it. But at the same time, it, it's not that bad. I mean, it, it's really it's not that bad to get to the ball games. All right, Valerie in New Berlin, Valerie, you're on WTMJ.
3: Hi, and thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Now I am a full, I am a full season seat holder. Have been for many years. I my grandson is a avid fan, and he's only fifteen. However, I listen to some of the fans, because I'm there so much, and it's like, ah, oh, they've been in at five out of six times. Do they not forget the drought we had yeah. in 82, pretty much, and it's like... I look at it with my grandson, it may be the last opportunity he gets in his lifetime to go to these things. And it's a memory you can't make anywhere else. Yes, we've made it five out of the last six years. And some of them feel, well, they get here all the time, but don't make it all the way. They can't make it all the way unless we're there supporting them. They need to hear us encouraging them for them to keep going. If we're not there caring, well, Why should they try?
2: Yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks for calling. Well, again, when you see that's the thing about sports, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, just look at the example last year. The Phillies were what I think the last wild card team to get in. You know, they end up going into the the World Series. I mean, that's the fun of sporting events. And uh, see, I guess what I'm trying to say, and look, I understand there's people that can't afford to go to baseball games or don't have the time, but this is a great sports town. I mean, they ended up drawing over two and a half million people, and it's just interesting to me that there's, in a game like this, for for this is the culmination of the season, they're one of only a handful of teams that are left, one of only six teams in the National League that are left, and that, that, that there's not waiting lines to, to get in. And, and maybe that will will happen. Okay. You can't keep doing that. You can't keep taking away my screen. 855 Julie, Julie, you're on WTMJ.
4: Hi, I was just, I was just thinking, you know, it was such a late notice for the time
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, of the game. You know, everybody's waiting. What time is the game? You know, if when we get in, what time is this going to be? And then, you know, people have to take off of work. You know, you have to adjust time, you know, things that you want to do that you were going to do. I don't know, I just find it, it they waited too long for to set the yeah. time of the game
2: do you, you think know? do you think and, I mean, now that, I, do you think now that they know now that we know it's six o'clock so it, it's after work, do you think there's going be do you think between now and the time of the game tomorrow there'll be a huge sale that they'll do it
4: i i I think so i I mean I personally I wish I could go yeah. I mean I watch it on TV but it's yeah. um, you know it's not convenient for me because I'm a brewer fan. my husband's a so so fan. You know, so i I watch it on TV. but, um, I think i, I just think there should have been a little bit more warning. Yeah. you know, I know my sister was very disappointed when they changed it because on that Thursday, you know, because right. she had tickets, but she couldn't get off of work because,
2: yeah, it was last earlier. Thursday, right. Now, thanks to call Julia, yeah, you're talking about with St. Louis. they because the Packers were playing at night, they moved the game from the evening up to. The afternoon. Matter of fact, I had tickets to that game. I ended up giving away uh, because I, I couldn't make the afternoon game. Mike in Appleton. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. How
0: are you doing? I'm well, uh, Yeah, my, my perspective is 20-pack uh, holder, full disclosure, 20-pack holder. Um, I, I look to upgrade in the playoffs to better seats. uh sit in the club currently, not that that's bad, but uh, we're looking at why are people not interested in going and filling that stadium? And I, I can't fathom that there's a good excuse why, regardless of what you say. Uh, ticket prices seem to be falling. Uh, get out there, grab them, do what you can, fill the stadium, have it be a home field advantage. Yeah, um, I've, I've been there every year since 2011 playoffs, uh, every game, every home game. So it's a blast. Yeah, Take a like crazy it, it, and watch yeah. your game.
2: Yeah, Mike, thanks for calling. You know, one of the most enjoyable... Enjoyable experiences that I, I've had at, at baseball games has been. I mean, I remember the playoffs a few years ago when they beat, interestingly, Arizona. Game five, Niger Morgan scores the winning run. I just the, – the way the stadium was rocking and walking out. And, it, and look, and I understand if you're not a baseball fan, if that's not your thing, I, I get it. You don't want to be there. But if you are a baseball fan, man, there's no reason not to be there. I am very, very much looking forward to going to the game tomorrow night and Wednesday night and hopefully as long as it continues. All right. That's it for me. We're going to, uh, again, Wisconsin's Afternoon News, they are broadcasting. John and Greg are out at the stadium, so they're going to be bringing you all the sights and sounds and everything that's going on. I am back 12 noon tomorrow when we do it all again. Wisconsin's Afternoon News coming up right after the break.